Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon.
please take out your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I wanted to say thanks to the kids for leading us. I know several of them went out, but yeah, thank you guys for sharing your musical gifts with us this morning. And the moms and dads and everybody who helped make it happen. But yeah, I was really blessed by that. I've had that song running through my head this uh, last month. I think Pam has too. And because uh, we hear it being practiced, I, was, I like that song. Um, we are in that passage Nancy just read for us. Thank you so much, Nancy. And uh, it's the fourth Sunday of Advent. It's the fourth Sunday in our, our Christmas uh, series this year. Uh, would you please pray with me? And then we'll get right into, uh, right into the text this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for just the joy of worshiping you. It's, it's joyful uh, every time your people gather, but uh, this time of year, there's uh, an extra oomph of, of just being able to, to celebrate together as your sons and daughters, as your people, as a gathered church. And we praise you for that, and we thank you. Um, Lord, we um, just want to pray this morning for your help. Uh, I appreciated uh, per- Kurt praying earlier for help for those who are hit by the storms. Uh, I wanted to pray, too, that you'd help people who are struggling with illness and sicknesses. There are several in our area, many in our area, several even from our own church, uh, people dealing with COVID, dealing with other things. We just ask you to, to intervene on their behalf and to, uh, to help them, Lord, uh, by bringing healing and uh, restoration to their physical bodies. And we pray you'd bring now some healing uh, to our, our spirits and our minds as we spend time in your word. Uh, help us to understand this passage, what it means to us in our lives today. And I pray that every single one of us, not a person would leave this morning uh, without having heard from you in some way or another. I pray every one of us would hear from you, those who are joining us online and those here in the building. In Christ's name we ask that. Amen. One of the most famous Christmas stories, other than the Christmas story, of course, uh, is a story by Charles Dickens. It's called A Christmas Carol. And if you're not familiar with it, A Christmas Carol tells the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. And Scrooge is a selfish, angry, miserly old man, and he hates Christmas. It's kind of the beginning, you know, you find this out in the beginning of the book. He he hates everything about Christmas. Uh, But then one Christmas Eve, the ghost of his former business partner visits him. Uh, And his partner's name was Jacob Marley, and Marley had died seven Christmas Eves before. He had died on Christmas Eve seven years before, and now seven years later to the day, uh, Marley's ghost appears to Ebenezer Scrooge. And it's very disturbing. You know, sometimes you watch cartoon versions of this, it doesn't really come out, but in the book, it's this very frightening, scary experience uh, for Scrooge to have a ghost sitting in his living room. Uh, But as they're talking, Scrooge warms up a little bit, or at least, you know, gets less scared, and so he's able to talk with the ghost. And he notices that the ghost has chains. Marley's ghost has all these chains around his waist, and they're spread out on the floor uh, around him, and these ghostly kind of glowing chains. And, and Scrooge works up the courage to ask about them. 
You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. And here's how the ghost answers. I wear the chains I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Is its pattern strange to you? Scrooge trembled more and more. Or would you know, pursued the ghost, the weight and length of the strong coil you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this one seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge glanced about him on the floor in expectation of finding himself surrounded by some 50 or 60 fathoms of iron cable. But he couldn't see anything. He could see nothing. He couldn't see the chain. Uh, to be clear, I'm not recommending Charles Dickens for theology. You don't read uh, Dickens for theology. It's just a story. Uh, but he was onto something with those chains. Charles Dickens was onto something with the chains. You see, the Bible teaches that all, apart from Jesus Christ, all human beings are enslaved. We are chained. We are enslaved by sin. Spiritually speaking, Dickens was not far from the truth. There really are invisible chains that many people drag through their lives. This month, uh, I realized on a last Sunday before Christmas, we may have some of you visiting, so let me bring you up to speed. Uh, we've been focusing on the reasons for the season. I've been kind of playing off of the old, you know, the banner, the button, Jesus is the reason for the season. Well, we've been talking about the reasons for the season. And so we've been asking a question. And the question we've been asking is, why was Jesus born? What's the reason? What are some of the reasons that the New Testament talks about? And so we've been kind of not just staying in the nativity passages, we've been ranging around the New Testament looking at different passages that tell us why Jesus Christ was born. And, and so three weeks ago, we talked about truth. We said that Jesus was born to reveal reality. Uh, John 18, 37, Jesus says, For this purpose I was born, to bear witness to the truth. He, he came right out and explained the reason himself. Uh, in uh, Luke, we have another one. Uh, Jesus was born to save sinners. We talked about that one two weeks ago. Uh, Luke 19.10, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, and then last week, third Sunday of Advent, we talked about Christ's victory over the devil. Uh, Jesus was born, we said, to defeat Satan. And uh, we looked at actually several passages. I want to basically pick up where I left off last week uh, because we looked at several passages last week to show that Jesus was born to defeat Satan. And one of those passages was the one we heard a few minutes ago, the one that Nancy read from Hebrews chapter 2, because that's what it says. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, which I read last week, says, uh, Since therefore the children, we talked about how the children is us, uh, the children share in flesh and blood. Since therefore you and I are flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Now comes the reason. So he became human like us, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And so Jesus was born, we said, to defeat the devil. And I told you last week that we were going to come back to this passage, and the reason we're coming back to it is this passage gives us another reason. There's actually a second reason that it talks about. It's there in verse 15. So again, reaching back to 14, he partook of the same things. Jesus became flesh and blood like you and I are, so that, verse 15, he might deliver all those who were subject to lifelong slavery. And so there's the fourth reason we're going to talk about in this series. Jesus was born to free the captives. Jesus was born to set people free. And so I want to look at verses, we're going to focus most of our time on verses 15 through 18, 
And what I see in those verses are three forms of captivity, three forms of captivity that Jesus sets us free from. Uh, These are the invisible chains, the invisible chains that so many people drag through their lives. But according to the gospel, according to this passage, we don't have to. We don't have to drag those chains because Jesus sets us free from them. So let's look at them. Let's talk about three forms of captivity from which Jesus was born to set us free. Uh, The first one that this passage talks about, there's more than three, but these are the three in this passage. The first one is that he was born to free us from the fear of death. The fear of death. Jesus was born to set us free from the fear of dying and just the fear of death in general. Now that's the one in verse 15. Uh, Through his death, it says, Jesus uh, delivers all those who through fear of death. I specifically, I I purposely left those words out when I read it two minutes ago. Uh, He he was born to deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And so that connects back to verse 14. Uh, Through his own death, Jesus destroyed the devil, right? The one who has the power of death it says, and therefore we're, we're free from, he delivers us from the fear of death, verse 15. So what are we talking about, right? So we, we're going we're to stop there and we're going to say, what does it mean to say the devil has the power of death? Why does it say that in verse 14? Well, I'll tell you, it does not mean the devil controls when we die. Right, so let's just get that out of our brains. Uh, he does not have that power or that authority. That's very clear in the scriptures. Think of the book of Job where Satan has to ask permission even to, you know, even to harass uh, Job. Uh, Satan does not control when we die. That is in God's hands. When our lives finish is up to God. He's the one who decides when our time is over. So if it doesn't mean that, if verse 14 does not mean Satan controls when we die, what does it mean when it says he has the power of death? And I think the answer is that Satan is very good, he's an expert, at using the reality of death, which is God's just punishment on the human race because of sin. Uh, Satan is very good at using death to wreak havoc in human lives. He's very good at stirring up war and causing murders and and all these other things. But one of his very favorites, one of his favorite ways to use death to torment human beings is fear. I think that's what we see there in verse 15. Uh, human beings are innately, I think it's, it's part of the fall, we are rightly, you might even say, uh, afraid of death, and Satan uses that. That's the power that he has when it talks about the power of death. He uses fear to, 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 lead, to mislead and tempt and harm and torment human beings. And I think to talk about this, to appreciate why verse 15 is good news, we do have to spend a little bit of time acknowledging that there are good reasons to be afraid of death. I mean, I I do believe this. We would do a disservice, and we do do a disservice when we pretend somehow that death isn't something to be afraid of. Uh, Humanity, people have good reasons for being afraid of death, this universal experience that that people partake in. And let me just talk about that a little bit. Um, People are afraid sometimes, for example, of death because of the unknown nature of it. Most of us, there's always a few kind of... uh, thrill seekers out there who just love, you know, the next unknown thing that's going to happen to them. But most human beings, most of us are kind of wired to to have at least a little bit of fear, maybe a lot of fear of that which is unknown. And death is the ultimate unknown. We we don't know. None of us, by by kind of the very nature of the thing, none of us knows what it's like to die. The only people who knows what it's like to die are the people who've died. And they can't come back and tell us about it because they're dead, right? I'm not a, I don't put a lot of stock or if any stock in kind of those back from the death kinds of things. Uh, the Bible says the appointed man wants to die. And so the only people who know what death is actually like are in no position to tell the rest of us. 
And so it's unknown, right? Like, there's really not much else to say about that because we don't know anything about it. But death, there's, there's this frightening capacity sense of it in which, because we don't know. We don't know what it is or what will happen, what it will be like. Uh, other things, though, you know, why else are people afraid of death? Sometimes we're, people are afraid of death because of what they think they do know. Right? All those wrong ideas that, that human beings, not just Western culture, but kind of humans through history and around the world, all these things people think they do know about death. Those are frightening too. Uh, and um, I just want to talk about the ancient Romans, right? So the, the, we'll, we'll just talk about ancient Rome because that's where the gospel first goes to. It comes to the Jews, but then it spreads out into the Roman Empire. And so the first culture that that the, the good news of Jesus comes to is a culture, is what we often call Greco-Roman culture. So let me tell you about uh, what the Romans believed about the afterlife. So, the, you know, the person Paul runs into on the street, what did they believe? Well, uh, the general consensus among scholars is that, um, and, and it was that everybody went to the underworld. All right, so do you catch that? There's no heaven in the Roman conception of things. There's no glorious place that people go to. Everybody, they would, they would live on. The Romans believed in an eternal soul, but they all went to the underworld. That's where everybody went. Now, they did think some parts of the underworld were better than others. And so they, they believed there was this place called, for example, the, the Fields of Elysium. The Fields of Elysium. And the Fields of Elysium, it, it wasn't heaven, you know, it's not, or don't sub substitute in the, the biblical conception of heaven, but it was kind of this nicer place. It was kind of like this dreamy, weird, almost like a dream-like place um, that, that heroic people would go to. And that was the thing about Elysia. The only people who went there were the epic heroes. You know, Achilles would, would go to Elysia when he, when he was done. And, you know, those kinds of people would go there. But, but most people folks like you and me, just normal people, uh, would go to a different place called Tartarus. Tartarus. And Tartarus was, was bleak and gloomy. You do not, it is not a nice place. Uh, it, it wasn't really the place of torment, necessarily, that you see in Scripture, but it's this bleak, dark, gloomy place that, that you, would, you would go to. And that's where most people went. They would go to Tartarus after they died. But if you didn't get a good burial... Right? So if you didn't get a proper burial, like if you died at sea or something like that, you wouldn't even get to go to Tartarus. The Roman conception of things was that you were actually uh, trapped on this side of the river Styx. Uh, there was a river, S-T-Y-X, which uh, separated this world from the uh, underworld. And if you didn't have the fare to pay the ferryman to cross the river Styx, and you only got the right fare by being buried properly, then you couldn't even go in. And so you were doomed to kind of wander the earth as a, as a disembodied spirit. That's the world. That's what people believe when Paul and Peter and Jesus, first of all, bring the gospel into that worldview. It is, the, the idea of death is that it is this gloomy horrible place. Right? Nobody was looking for it, which is why, you know, what was one of the Roman uh, uh, beliefs about life? Carpe diem, <laughs> seize the day, because what's coming afterwards sure ain't worth been, uh, investing anything into. And that's ancient Rome. You say, okay, those people are all dead, but you know what? I'm amazed at how much, how many people today believe something that's kind of similar, right? I mean, and it's, it's not necessarily that people still believe in the river sticks and, and paying the ferryman a coin to get across and all that stuff. But, but think about it. If you have abandoned a Christian worldview, death is, is this gloomy, pointless, bleak experience. 
And you know, sometimes philosophers will maybe you've, you know will talk about existential dread. You ever hear that term? You know, existential dread. It's it's kind of an attempt by philosophers to to try to capture the human fear, especially the modern human fear of of what it would be like to cease to exist. All right. So you and I we're sitting here right now, and and we've got thoughts and abilities and emotions, and and we are very cognizant of our own existence. <laughs> And, and the modern conception of, of death is that I'm here now, and then, you know, the heart gives out, and I, I cease to exist. And, and that, you know, philosophers and so on like to talk about how, I mean, that's a very terrifying idea for many people, eh? to be here one minute and to not exist at all the, the next. Uh, it, that's a fearful thing, right? If you come back to this idea of the fear of death, why are people afraid of death? Why are the people you and I know afraid of death. Well, some of it's the unknown aspect of it. Some of it's what they think they know, that they're just going to cease to exist. That's not really very comforting, actually. And then other times, again, I'm sorry to belabor this on the Sunday before Christmas, but I don't think we appreciate the good news if we, if we fail to appreciate the bad news. Uh, sometimes people are afraid of death for just the straight-up practical reasons. Just, just you know, practical reasons. Um, a lot of times, death involves pain. We don't like pain. And, and, you know, there's kind of, you know, the, the holy grail of the good death is to kind of die quietly in your sleep in your very, very old age. But, um, but most of us don't seem to get that, right? A lot of us have to deal with pain, with agony to varying degrees and so on. And, and, and so that's scary. And then we're, we're afraid because of the effect that our death might have on other people. And, and for a lot of us, that one's actually, you know, it's almost like, well, I don't mind suffering myself, but what about the people around me? And so we worry about the grief that it'll cause when we die or the financial implications on our loved ones. Uh, if we have younger children, I remember this one bothered me a lot before my kids uh, got out of the house. You know, you, you know who would raise them? Who would, you know, what would it be like for them to lose their dad or to lose their mom? You know, that, that's another layer of the fear that we deal with. And the point is, what's the point? The point is there are lots of reasons human beings have uh, for being afraid of death. And what does verse 15 say? Verse 15 says, Jesus was born to set us free from the fear of death. He was born to set us free from it. Not by making all those fears go away. Right? Some, some of the ones I just talked about, he makes them go away, right? The whole nihilism thing and the, the way the Romans saw stuff, that he dispenses with. But some of those practical fears, it's not that he makes those things go away, but what he does do is he offers us something far better infinitely better on the other side of those challenges. And so, yes, we, we will acknowledge that death brings grief and pain and loss. We're not ducking our heads in the sand and pretending that's not the case. We know too well that that's the case. But for the believer, how does Jesus set us free from the fear of death? For the believer, we know that death also brings peace and joy and, and even freedom. Paul says it in Philippians 1.23. What does he say? To depart and to be with Christ is better by far. It's better by far. Most people recognize the name C.S. Lewis, one of the most important Christian writers in the 20th century, uh, wrote the Narnian Chronicles, if you don't know him for anything else, those children's books. Uh, he, he wrote a letter to a friend of his just a few months before he died. Lewis died in November of 1963, and in June of 1963, he himself was dealing with a lot of health issues, and he wrote a letter to a friend who had even more health issues. Her name was Mary Willis Shelburne, and they actually had a long, long correspondence back and forth over the years. They had written to, they were, they were friends, and uh, she had written to him 
She had written to C.S. Lewis, her friend, and she told him some, some health struggles she was having. In fact, they were so bad, her, her doctor had told her she might die. And so she was looking at the very real prospect of dying because of what she was dealing with. And she kind of expressed to him her sorrow and her, her problems with that. Uh, Lewis wrote back to her, and you'll, some of you might recognize part of what I'm going to read here, uh, because part of it often gets quoted. But, but he wrote back to try to encourage his friend. Here's what he said. Pain is terrible, but surely you need not have fear as well. Can you not see death as friend and deliverer? It means stripping off that body, which is tormenting you, like taking off a hair shirt. I don't know what a hair shirt is, but it sounds uncomfortable. Uh, like taking off a hair shirt or getting out of a dungeon. What is there to be afraid of? Uh, you have long attempted, and none of us does more, he says Riley. You have long attempted a Christian life. Your sins are confessed and absolved. And here's my favorite part. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave behind. Jesus sets us free from the fear of death. We know that when we die, he's the one who's waiting for us on the other side. Yeah, moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas are waiting there too, but no, the one who really strips it, fear, strips it clean of its, of its fear is Jesus. Jesus is waiting there for us. And so that's the first form of captivity he frees us from. He frees us from the fear of death, it says in verse 15. There's, we're not done yet, though. There's more in this passage. The second form of captivity he frees us from is, uh, I'm going to call it the stain of sin. The stain of sin. That's what verses 16 and 17 focus on. Now, in, uh, in, in terms of the flow of the argument here in this part of, of Hebrews, uh, verse 16 elaborates on verses 14 and 15, all right? So, so you have this going, and so verses 14 and 15, Jesus was born, he became flesh and blood like us to destroy the devil and to free the captives. That's verses 14 and 15. And then we get this commentary in verse 16, for surely it's not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, right? And, and so the point of verse 16, and it's, it's, it kind of connects to the broader argument of Hebrews because chapter 1 talks a lot about angels, so he kind of goes back to angels for that reason. Uh, but basically in verse 16, he says, Jesus wasn't born to help the angels. And hey, you know what? The angels could use some help. Uh, we know from Scripture that there are mul you know, a multitude of angels that God created. They don't reproduce, but he created them all in one act of creation at some point in the ancient past. Uh, and he made all these angels, but a third of them rebelled. And so a third of all the angels that exist are actually living in sinful rebellion against God. And the writer says in verse 16, that's, Jesus didn't come to help them. He did not come to redeem the angels. He did not come to save the angels. Uh, that, that's what he says there. Who was he, who was he born to help? He was born to help us. Right? Us. He was born to help, uh, he says, human beings. Actually, specifically what he says is the offspring of Abraham, which is important. He says the offspring of Abraham. And that, you know, we read in this and we say, why Abraham? Why wouldn't he say Adam? Why wouldn't he say Jesus was born to help the offspring of Adam? And I think there's two reasons why it's Abraham specifically, all right? And they both have to, they're both important here. The first one is, and it's, it's, I'll call it less important, but it's interesting. The first one is that it simply emphasizes, again, the humanity of Jesus, so we're talking Jesus is flesh and blood, he's become one like us. And I think when he mentions Abraham, when it's the offspring of Abraham, he's plugging into that. Uh, Jesus is ethnically uh, Jewish, right? We all have an ethnicity. 
Right? We, we all are from somewhere, right? We descend from somebody. I'm Scotch-Irish more than anything else. It's really kind of a muck, but Scotch-Irish more than anything else. That's my ethnicity. Um, we all have an ethnicity, and I think what verse 16 reminds us, Jesus has an ethnicity. He was Jewish. So it's a way to emphasize his humanity and therefore his connection to, to us. But actually, the, the more theological or the more important reason Abraham is mentioned here is that Abraham was justified by faith. And so what you have here is actually a narrowing. Uh, Jesus doesn't come to save the... It's not, so we're not going to take a universalism approach where Jesus saves everybody that's human. No, it's that he only saves the offspring of Abraham. The offspring of Abraham are those who are justified by faith. And actually, the New Testament teaches that in a whole bunch of places. I'll just take uh, two verses from Galatians. Uh, Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it's those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So who are the descendants of Abraham? It's, it's not the Jewish DNA. The sons of Abraham, as far as the Bible is concerned in the New Testament, is it's those who are of faith. And then actually verse 29 of chapter 3 in Galatians is even more clear on this. If you are Christ's, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Same term that the writer of Hebrews is going to use. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring heirs according to the promise. And so who was Jesus born to help? He was born to help everyone who does what Abraham did. He was born to help everyone who trusts in Jesus by faith. And so, okay, so that's who he was born to help. How does he help? That's verse 17. And what verse 17 talks about is sin, his dealing with sin, his removal of the stain and and really the grip or the power of sin in our lives. So now you look at verse 17. Therefore, so he wasn't born to save angels, he was born to save humans, not just all humans, but the offspring of Abraham, those who trust in him in faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Key verse, uh, the first part of the verse Actually, it, it, this is such an important theme. I don't know if when you, when you saw we were in Hebrews this morning, you probably wondered, is that even a Christmas passage? But it really is. It keeps hammering away on the incarnation because it does it again here. Uh, Jesus is fully human. It points out there in the first part of that. He was made like his brothers in every respect. He lived a fully human life as a fully human person. And so Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to feel happy. He knew what it was like to laugh. He you know, knew how to uh, you know, laugh at a good joke and to tell a good joke. He, he knew how to do that, and he did do it. And it wasn't just that he knew how to do it. He experienced it. He knew grief. He knew crying. He knew weeping. Uh, he, I, I don't know how it would have played out, but he knew what it felt like to be attracted to somebody. He was an adult male, right? He was a man. Uh, he knew what it was like to be bullied as a kid. He knew what it felt like to be uh, mistreated and abused and criticized and taken advantage of. Uh, he knew what it was like to be sick. Yeah, many have been dealing with, with illnesses. Jesus knows if, you, if you're at home and you're watching from home because, uh, because you're sick right now. Jesus knew what it was to be sick. There is no reason to believe from Scripture that he didn't. He, he, you know, there's no reason to think he didn't deal with stomach aches and sore backs and the common cold, and, and all the rest of that stuff. He beca- what, is, what is this passage stressing? He became human. He became human so that he would experience every aspect of being human. There's only one exception. There's only one aspect of being human that Jesus did not share in, and the exception is that he never sinned. Not 
even once. He never sinned. And so he experienced everything we experience, but he never sinned. Uh, and that's actually two chapters later in Hebrews. Hebrews 4.15, uh, it's actually implied here, but it's stated clearly there. Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Hebrews 4.15. Because of that, he and only he, no one else, is qualified to be our high priest. The, the ones under the old covenant were temporary. They could step in. Uh, their terms expired. Uh, it had to be done over and over again. They weren't very good at it, most of them. Uh, only Jesus is qualified. It's a big theme all through Hebrews, actually. Only Jesus is qualified to be our ultimate and, and lasting high priest. And, and that's what it says in the second half of the verse. And it uses this technical word. Nancy and I were joking. You did great on your pronunciation, Nancy. Uh, you know, it uses this technical word, propitiation. And sometimes we'll use the word atonement for this. Um, let me just give kind of a basic definition of this word. Uh, a propitiation is a technical term, which means to make a sacrifice. So a sacrifice has to be involved with a propitiation. It means to make a sacrifice that removes or takes away uh, the, the guilt of sin by satisfying, so there's a specific thing you have to satisfy because it's a sacrifice, by satisfying God's wrath against the sin. That's what a propitiation is. And so to make propitiation <laughs> means to make a sacrifice that removes the guilt of sin by satisfying God's wrath against the sin. So a sacrifice has to be involved, and that's why Jesus died. Right? And so Jesus uh, offers himself. There's another thing he shared in, right? We talked about the fear of death before. Jesus even knows what it's like to die. He experienced that too. And so in, in his case, he offered himself uh, as the sacrifice. What was he appeasing? He was appeasing, I don't know if you've, you've probably thought about this, perhaps. Uh, what he's appeasing is his own wrath, right? Oftentimes we'll talk about the son appeasing the father's wrath, but because of the mystery of the Trinity, Jesus is also uh, appeasing his own wrath. So he offers himself as the sacrifice to bear the brunt of his own divine wrath against sin. But it's not his own sin, is it? It's our sin, which he takes upon himself. He has no sin, which means he's now qualified in his divinity to take upon himself our sin. And so he takes his sin, or excuse me, our sin, upon his, his self, himself. And that's the merciful part, which is why he talks about a merciful and faithful high priest. The faithful part means, I think it's a reference to the faithfulness to God's holiness. And then the merciful part is merciful to us. Because he could have been faithful and just punished us for our sin, but instead he was faithful and merciful by punishing our sin, but punishing it himself in himself so that we didn't have to take it. And all of that, the result of all of that, is the, the thrust of this second point. The, 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 the result of all of that is that he permanently removes the guilt of our sin. He takes it away. He makes propitiation. He takes it away, and he does so for good. Because he's a perfect sacrifice. Because Jesus offers a perfect sacrifice, the forgiveness he earns is perfect. The salvation, the atonement he makes is perfect. Which means, here's the freedom part, it means when we trust in Jesus, we are free. We're free from the stain of our sin. We are clean, permanently clean. Not kind of clean like you take a bath and you come back a day later and you're dirty again. Permanently clean before God. As it says in Isaiah 1.18, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. 
We haven't seen any of that yet this winter, but, but it's coming, and you know what it looks like. Our sins are, 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 though your sins are scarlet, they shall be. When you trust in Jesus, they shall be white as snow. And that means uh, we don't have to drag those chains around anymore. If I can go back to that picture, all right? Those chains are gone. We sing it sometimes, right? My chains are gone. Uh, chains of guilt, chains of regret, chains of remorse, chains of embarrassment, those chains of shame. He's broken them. You know, sometimes um, I, I, I have the privilege as a pastor of hearing people's testimonies. Sometimes people um, hang their heads in, in shame when they share their testimony. But I, I always kind of want to tell them, I'm, I'm too polite to say it, but maybe I should. I want to tell them, you don't have to hang your head. You know, your, your faithful and merciful high priest has broken those chains of shame. So, so don't hang your head. Hold your head up, up high because he set you free from that. Those things in the past, those are mere testimonies, uh, evidence of his grace, evidence of his mercy. He set us free. He set us free from the stain of our sin. So that's freedom number two. He frees the captives. He breaks those chains of the stain and the guilt and the shame of our sin. Finally, uh, the third form of captivity this uh, passage talks about Jesus delivers us from uh, is the power of temptation. The power of temptation. He frees us from that one too. And, and that's what it says in verse 18. So it's not just past, it's going forward. I think that's the beauty of this. The verses 16 and 17 talk about how he's dealt with our sin in the, you know, in the past, but he's also helping us in the present with it and, and into the future. So verse 18. For because he, him, he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he's experienced it, he can help us. That's, that's the basic Summary of verse 18. Uh, and so this word suffer is in the translation you're looking at. And uh, the word actually is kind of a, technically it's a neutral sort of word, which simply means to experience something. It means to experience. But in the Bible, if you look at all the different times this word suffer, this word experience is used, they're all negative. You can actually find um, in Greek literature broader, you can find positive uses of experiencing something positive. But in Scripture, the Scripture writers end up tasking this word to describe experiencing negative things. And so there are verses that talk about experiencing demon uh, oppression uh, or experiencing illness, experiencing persecution. And they're all instances. So it's why we translate it as suffer. And so the idea here is that it was hard. That's the emphasis in the first part of verse 18. When Jesus experienced temptation, he suffered temptation. It was difficult. It was a struggle for him. It was, it was, there was a heaviness to the fight with temptation for him, just like there is for us. Because we do need to appreciate that, that he really was fully tempted. Again, this passage, I think it's one of the reasons it hammers on the incarnation with this language in different places, right? And so what does verse 17 say? Uh, He was made like us in every respect. Every respect. Verse 14, uh, he partook of the same things. What same things? The same flesh and blood experience that you and I have. That's that's verse verse 14. And, And so he's fully human, right? He's fully human. We emphasize that. And it's hard for us sometimes. I don't think I'm the only one who, who deals with this. I, I'm pretty sure I'm not. Uh, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that concept and, and how, in terms of how it t- plays out with temptation, right? So Jesus is, uh, is fully human, 100% human, we might say, but he's also fully God, 100% God, right? So he's fully man, fully God, 
And so we wonder, doesn't that mean it must have been easier? It must have been easier for him somehow when he was tempted. It wasn't a real temptation. It's kind of like a, a fake temptation or, you know, it, 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 it couldn't have been real because he was not as real as I experienced because he was fully God as well as fully man. And so we wonder that. And, but the answer we have to understand from scripture, the answer to that is, is no, that's not true. Temptation was not easier for Jesus. It was not easier for him than it was for us. And I'll say that for two reasons. The first, the simpler one, is quite simply that the Bible doesn't say so. The Bible actually, I, I would argue, says the opposite. And again, it's all those passages I've been stressing. He was tempted, Hebrews 4.15 will say it, he was tempted just like you are, just like I am. He was tempted like us in every respect. And so the Bible doesn't say it. But then the other reason I think it's wrong to think that, to think that, 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 that temptation was easier for Jesus, is that the Bible, the big thing it does stress is that he never gave in. Because he never gave in, right? He never gave in. He, again, Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so Jesus never gave in to temptation, which means, and I'm going to use, I'm, I'm still not sure about the word I'm going to use, but I think it conveys what I want to say. It, what it means is that Jesus never experienced, not even once, the relief of giving in to temptation. He never experienced the let-up, the release of just saying, oh, forget it, I'm just going to do it. Not even once. Let me try to illustrate what I mean in kind of a silly sort of way. Let's imagine uh, somebody brings a plate of delicious-looking Christmas cookies to the, uh, to the church office, right? So tomorrow morning, somebody comes in, Monday morning, Angie's always here by 8 o'clock, they come in at 8.15, and they bring this heaping plate of delicious Christmas cookies, not the yucky ones with coconut or the sprinkles that get all over. <laughs> I'm talking good ones, okay? So they got the Christmas, here's a nice plate, and they put them on the counter there, and they say, those are for you. Those are, she, they tell Angie, make sure that everybody on the staff knows, those are for the staff this week. Big mound of Christmas cookies to bless you guys, okay? I'm not trying to angle for cookies, by the way. <laughs> Let's imagine something else. Let's imagine that I've been trying to cut down on Christmas cookies this year. In fact, let's imagine I made a vow. I made a vow that I am not going to eat any Christmas cookies until Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, I'm going to go whole hog, I'm going to pig out, I'm going to get everything I missed, but not until Christmas Eve. I'm not going to eat a single Christmas cookie until then. So I come in on Monday morning, and what do I see? Big plate of delicious-looking, tempting Christmas cookies. And I will be tempted, right? I will be tempted by those cookies. Now, if I'm going to keep my vow, those cookies are going to tempt me all week long, right? All week, I'll be tempted on Monday, and I'll be tempted on Tuesday, and I'll be tempted on Wednesday, and I'll be tempted on Thursday. And, and sometimes it'll be better than others. Maybe I'm depressed Tuesday afternoon, so I'm really tempted. Maybe I'm doing better Wednesday morning. I had a good workout. Now I'm not so tempted. But it, so it'll, it'll ebb and flow, but that temptation will be sitting there all week long. Every time I walk by them or even think about them, out there in the outer office. Now, there's a very easy way to, to deal with that temptation, to make it go away, isn't there? Eat the cookies. <laughs> right? Angie leaves midday. I go out there. Andrew, Monday's his day off, and I eat all the cookies. And, and, and boom, you know, cookies gone, temptation gone. I won't be tempted on Tuesday to eat the cookies if I ate all the cookies on Monday. There's a very easy way to get rid of the temptation. 
But if I can hold out, if I resist, if I keep my vow and I don't eat any, I will deal with that temptation all week long. Which means the temptation is stronger if I don't give in than it is if I do. And that's the experience of Jesus. I belabor Christmas cookies because I think it's a good way to help us understand. And actually other much smarter, better theologians than me have have noted this. Uh, He actually experienced temptation more strongly than you and I ever have or ever will precisely because he never gave in. So he knows the full extent of temptation. We've never followed it all the way to the end because we have at different times in our life given in. And so he, he knows. He knows. Uh, he, 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 he never gave in to that unholy release that I talked about before. And so that puts him in position to help us, right? He, he, because he experienced it the same way we do, in fact, maybe even, there's no maybe about it, even stronger than we do, then now he is in the perfect position to help us when we're tempted, okay? So, so that's, the, that's what verse 18 is saying. He can help us. He helps us because he himself was tempted. I want to end with this. I just want to ask, or the last part of this last move, uh, is simply how does that work? Because I was, you know, and I was asking my wife for some help, actually, how does she think about this? And we were talking about this together. How does that actually help, though? How does that play out when I'm actually tempted, when we're actually tempted? And uh, I think there are two ways. There's probably more, but I thought of, of two ways that knowing he was tempted even more than we are helps us in our own temptations. Uh, two, two, two answers here. One way it helps us is that it reinforces, it helps us better understand that Jesus is on our side. And I think that's really important. I don't know if we always appreciate how much Jesus is on our side in the fight against temptation. I don't know how many of you picked up that book, Gentle and Lowly, that we were giving away a couple months ago, but that's actually one of the big themes in that book. He's trying to help the reader understand Jesus is for you, not against you. When it comes to temptation, I think some of us imagine, you know, so we're, so here's, here's me down here experiencing a temptation and, and Jesus looks and he's kind of like, hmm, how are you doing down there? Well, let's, let's see if you make it. Uh, but that's not what's going on. He's not our adversary in this process. He's our ally, right? He's, he's, he's ready to fight that battle with us precisely because he himself has fought that battle. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the, in the Old Testament, especially Psalm 103, uh, it's uh, verses 13 and 14, says, The Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Uh, in, in the, under the Old Covenant, before the Incarnation, he knows experiential, or excuse me, he knows um, in his knowledge, right? God knows we're made of dust and therefore we are weak. He knows it because he made us. He was there, right? He did it. He made us from dust, so he knows we're weak. Now, with the incarnation, he knows it even more. I don't know if how to, I, that's probably not the right way to say it, but you, do you know what I mean? Because now to his omniscience about our weaknesses and frailties, he's added his own actual experience. Jesus himself has, he knows what it's like, experientially, to be tempted. And he still knows because he did it, because he made us. And so it's just this idea that he's on our side. He knows uh, how hard it is. And so he's ready to help us. He wants to help us. His heart is for us. And his spirit is powerful to help us. And so there's that side of it. We have his help in in the fight against temptation. And then I think another way we could talk about that his 
uh, success against temptation. So he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he never gave in. The other thing that does is it shows us the path. You call it the, the power of a, of a good example or of a perfect example in his case. Because Jesus faced the same temptations we're going to face in our lives, but he didn't give in to them. And so there's this realization that it can be done. And if we say, well, how can it be done? The answer becomes, look at Jesus. <laughs> do, it, you know, do what he did. And you're not going to be perfect like he did because he's perfect. Uh, but, but we're going to get closer and closer by the power of the help of his Holy Spirit. We're going to see more and more success against our own fight against temptation as we imitate him, as we follow him. That's what a disciple does. A disciple imitates uh, his or her, her, uh, her teacher, right? We, we follow our teacher. And so when we're tempted, it, it, and, and especially in preparation for temptation, the right thing to do is to ask, how did Jesus handle it? Right, so, so how did Jesus, you know, a couple of practical examples, how did Jesus, fully man, how did Jesus keep his heart pure toward the people of the opposite sex? He didn't just avoid women all the time, right? He didn't just go live in a monastery. How did Jesus keep his heart pure? Well, we can study in the Gospels. We can read through the Gospels and watch his interactions with women. We can watch how he treats them, always with humanity, always with dignity, always with compassion, always, always, always with purity, right? And we can, we can look at that and we can say, okay, those are the, the strategies, the principles I'm going to apply in my own life. And that goes men for women, women for men. How did he resist uh, the temptation to abuse power? Right? Most people have some level of power. You know, maybe if you're a parent, you have power over your children. Maybe you have some sort of authority or, or a power in the job that you have. There, and one of the great, one of the terrible things about uh, a power is that there's always this temptation to, to abuse it. Well, how did, how did Jesus avoid that? I mean, talk about power. I mean, do you ever wonder, how did he keep from just blowing up those Pharisees? I'd have been, you know, they're criticizing him, saying one of their, their wise, wise guy things. And how did he just keep from going, you know, boom? You know, not even once. Not even once did he do that to them. How is it, right? And so we can look in the Gospels. We can pay close attention to how much time he spent in the Word, how much time he spent in prayer, um, how, how, he, how he would engage with those guys, how he wouldn't engage with those guys. You, you, can, you can look to his life. We can look at how he resisted. You know, all these things we we would be, how did Jesus avoid the temptation, resist the temptation to give in to bitterness, self-pity? How did he resist the temptation to gossip? I mean, talk about someone who's in a good position to gossip, right? He knows everything, right? And never once did he kind of say, hey, Peter, psst, come here, let me tell you about that guy over there. You know, not even once. How did he resist that? Again, you, you, we, can, we can look at his, his character and what he did, and how he lived. We can read this in the Gospels, and, and that becomes a help to us. And so I think that helps us too. That's another way that he, uh, he helps us as he's setting us free from the power of temptation. He gives us the, the power of his example. Uh, and I would, I, would, I would just say that I think that second one, the example, is subordinate to the first one. It's the power of his Holy Spirit working in us. But it's helpful to know that we can look at him and, and then follow him by his grace. Well, as I was working on this last week, uh, just kind of wrapping it up, I was actually toward the end of the week, and I was you know, thinking about my conclusion, and I, I actually found myself humming uh, a Christmas carol. And it wasn't actually the whole song to the carol, it was just a, a phrase, a fragment from one of the carols that are, is kind of well-known. And the phrase was, Born to set thy people free. 
It kept kind of running through my head. And you can see why, right? We're talking about freedom. Jesus was born to set his people free. And so that phrase kept running through my head, born to set thy people free. And I couldn't quite place it, but thanks, you know, things are so easy these days. You just you know, I typed it into a search engine, you know, carol, Christmas carol, born to set thy people free. Boom, there it was. Come thou long expected Jesus. I was like, oh yeah, come thou long expected Jesus. I love that one. Uh, it's an old one. It was written in the 1700s by Charles Wesley. And uh, I, I'm just going to close with his words. It's, just, it's actually a short carol. It's only two stanzas. I'm going to just read the words of that well-known carol because it, parts of it really express the heart of what we talked about today. So let me just read you these and I'll pray. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Second stanza, again the freedom, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thy own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, by thine all-sufficient merit. How has it come to us? Do we earn it? No, no. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for, the, for your word and for the wondrous promise here, the promise of freedom uh, from our captivity. We don't have to be like Scrooge in the, in the fictional conception, walking around through our lives with invisible chains dragging behind us. You have uh, set us free through your death and resurrection. And we praise you for that. We thank you for that. Thank you for this time of year to celebrate that, Lord, your birth, the, the incarnation. Uh, without the incarnation, it, the rest of it doesn't click into place because you were just like us. You were a man just like us in every way except, uh, except for the sin. And so we thank you, our precious and holy Savior. Uh, Lord, we thank you finally that this is available to all. Anybody here... Uh, could reach out and, and take this gift, this free gift of freedom is freely given, uh, not by me or by a church, but by you. And so I just pray that each of us here, um, if there's any here who uh, haven't been so certain about this, I pray that you and your grace would open their eyes to see what a glorious, glorious gift of freedom you offer to us through your Son. So we thank you, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.